Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm Danielle Nishida, and I'm here with Lori Hatton Boyd. Today, we'll be discussing the draft forms W-8 released by the IRS over the past couple weeks. As a reminder, we've already walked through the updates pertaining specifically to 1446F on the drafts forms W-8-BEN, ECI, and IMY during our prior podcast. So our focus today will be more on the non-1446F updates to these forms, as well as to changes to the recently released draft of the form W-8-BEN-E. We will discuss selected updates that were done for 1446F purposes to kind of talk through some of the issues, but we're not going to walk through all of the changes in detail. So we do recommend listening to episode seven for that discussion if you're interested in that. So to get started, we're seeing many of the updates being done consistently across multiple forms. For that reason, rather than walking through each form individually, we thought we'd talk about some of these consistent changes up front first. Lori, do you want to walk us through some of these? So just starting off, the first thing to notice is the revision date of these forms. It's October 2021, which is very soon from now, which means the IRS has very little time to react to comments. So I think the important note there is to get your comments in just as soon as you can, because we have talked with the government and they really do want to keep with this October date. So you really need to get those comments in. The next issue that I want to talk about is a change to the W-8-BEN-E and the W-8-ECI, and that is with respect to the entity type, um, and specifically with respect to governments. They've now bifurcated the government status into two different types, one checkbox for integral parts of a foreign government, and then another different checkbox for controlled entities of a foreign government. The next issue is a new checkbox next to the foreign taxpayer identification number. The instructions before said that if you were in a jurisdiction that didn't issue a TIN, so not confusing this with the countries on the no TIN list, but where your country of residence was not one of those countries on the no TIN list, but you did not have a legal requirement to have an F-TIN. And the instructions before told you to write in there not legally required. And I think there was a lot of unintended errors with respect to that. People were writing in different things, attaching long explanations that didn't just really get to the point that the IRS wanted it to say not legally required. So now they've added this checkbox. So hopefully that will help reduce some of those unintended errors with respect to the F-10 when the person didn't actually have one. And I would note here that the instructions indicate that the person may further provide an explanation for not providing an F-10 on a separate statement attached to the form. And yes, legally, you can do that. I'm just going to say as someone who deals with these forms, please don't do that. If you have that checkbox, that is your reasonable explanation. So unless you have a withholding agent specifically questioning why you're checking the box, there really is no reason to provide additional information because the more information you provide, the more information the withholding agent has to vet to determine whether it's reasonable or not. And so all you're doing is giving the withholding agent more reason to invalidate your form. I I completely agree with that. Again, the IRS has said all you need to say is not legally required and that's it. So yeah, completely agree. We don't need any more than that. The next change I wanted to talk about, and I I think this is a good one. We know now that on the W-8-BEN-E, an entity claiming treaty benefits has to indicate which provision in the limitation on benefits article of the treaty that they meet to be entitled to treaty benefits. 
And some of the older treaties actually don't have a limitation on benefits article. And so the instructions previously said, if this was your situation, you were supposed to check the other box and then write in N.A., I don't think a lot of people read those instructions to know that that's what was required. We were hoping that in the event they didn't do that, that the IRS on exam would consider that an inconsequential error, but we just weren't sure. But now they've actually added a specific checkbox that indicates there is no LOB article in the treaty that I'm claiming benefits from. So that that I think should be helpful. Another change that was made with respect to the WA-BEN-E relates to the new reporting requirements under 6050Y, and that's when there is a sale of certain insurance contracts that are reportable, and the WA-BEN-E is going to be needed so that the person that's selling that insurance policy or is receiving death benefits from a a reportable policy can certify that they're a non-U.S. person. So the certifications have been updated and the instructions updated for this specific circumstance. And then just a couple non-substantive changes to the forms. With respect to the signatures, there's some updated instructions relating to electronic signatures, and that's just consistent with what's in the regulations for what's necessary for a valid electronic signature. With respect to the capacity box, they've actually shifted the checkbox certification that the person signing the form has the capacity to do so. So it's up above the signature line as opposed to down below it. Presumably that was a result of comments that came in where people think that there would be less chance for error if it's above the signature line, that it wouldn't be overlooked. And then on the WA Ben, they've replaced the the fill-in line where you would write in your capacity in which you're acting if you're signing on behalf of an individual. So if you're a guardian or have some power of attorney to act on behalf of somebody. The instructions make clear that if an agent or a third party is signing for the individual, then they would check that capacity box. And again, because there's not the fill-in box anymore. And nothing's changed with the rules that the withholding agent that's receiving that form would still need to get a copy of that legal document that authorizes that person to sign. And I assume that probably most individuals that are filling this form out for themselves are probably going to check that box too. And we're hoping that this isn't going to be any kind of audit issue because it's going to be clear by the print name that it's the same person. So hopefully that's that's just not going to be an issue. And then the final note I, I wanted to bring up with respect to the forms is because some of these fields have changed and and they've added some additional things, some other fields are actually getting smaller and you may not be able to fit in the information you need in that box. And so if that's the case in the situation that the person completing the form has, they should just attach a statement that goes with the form where they are able to provide the complete information that's supposed to go on that particular line. So that concludes my discussion on the general changes to the various forms. And with that, I'm gonna send it back to Danielle to discuss the specific changes relating to 1446F on the Form W8-BEN-E and the accompanying instructions. Thanks, Lori. So for the W8-BEN and the BEN-E, they have similar changes, and so I'll discuss them together. The primary purpose of updating the forms was to make the changes necessary to accommodate the use of the forms for 1446F purposes. So we are definitely seeing substantial updates to the instructions pertaining to 1446F. However, there's nothing surprising here. For example, the instructions contain background information regarding the requirements, and then there's been a lot of updates to the definitions, but there are a couple of notable updates. The first one is the updates to the treaty section. 
We did expect to see updates in the treaty section because 1446F provides an exception from withholding for a partner that is not subject to withholding on any gains on the sale of the partnership interest under a treaty. So as expected, we are seeing updates to the instructions addressing business profits. The instructions that have been added are really applying to business profits claims across the board. And they simply state that if you're making a business profits claim, you must complete the special rates and conditions line, completing the relevant article, and that you're additionally going to have to write in a statement on that line indicating that you have no permanent establishment in the United States. This requirement applies to all business profits claims, and it isn't new information. This isn't a change in the rules. It's just a clarification of the prior requirement indicating that this absolutely has to be done because there were issues where people were not always filling in the special rates and conditions or they were writing in an explanation that simply stated that they're eligible for this particular article of a treaty without actually making the claim of regarding the permanent establishment. So this is helpful in that it's spelling out exactly what you need to do, but it's not necessarily a change in the rules. What's really notable is what's not in the instructions. Based on the way that the 1446F regs were drafted, we expected there to have to be a specific statement addressing 1446F and gains on this transfer of a partnership interest. And they don't do that. They simply indicate that this business profits claim can be used for purposes of a transfer of an interest in a partnership, but they're stating that you're just going to make a general business profits article claim with no reference to 1446F. That makes sense, and it's actually a really positive thing because there really is no need to specifically call out 1446F. If you're exempt under business profits, you're going to be exempt on all income, including gains. So that makes it a lot easier from the perspective of the person completing the form, and that is very positive. The challenge will be on the due diligence side, though. A transferee is going to have to review this claim and determine whether it's reasonable. There's going to be very limited cases where we expect to see a valid business profits claim for someone invested in a partnership interest when that partnership has effectively connected income. The partnership itself should be able to determine this because they know where their income is coming from. They know whether it's attributable to a permanent establishment. So that shouldn't be a problem. But the bigger issue is what about transferees that aren't the partnership? So, for example, a broker, what level of knowledge is a broker required to have? Presumably, they'll be able to review everything in the qualified notice, and we expect that brokers will have to look at the qualified notice. But it does raise a question of, would you expect a broker to have to look at anything potentially in a prospectus or use any sort of common sense about whether this partnership should have a PE or not? I would hope not, because that's incredibly laborious for the brokers, but that's not 100% clear. I think the reasonable answer is a broker should just have to look at the qualified notice and otherwise rely on the treaty claim. They shouldn't have to investigate or speculate. And then the other significant change we saw to the form W8BEN and BEN-E instructions relates to the U.S. TIN requirement. The instructions make it clear that a partner in a partnership that earns ECI is not only required to obtain a U.S. TIN, but must provide that EIN or other U.S. TIN on the form W8. This requirement would also apply when that partner is providing the Form W-8 as a transferor of a partnership interest receiving an amount subject to withholding under 1446F. So the prior version of the form instructions simply stated that the partner must obtain the U.S. TIN, and they somewhat implied that that TIN should be provided on the form, but they didn't specifically state that it had to be required. 
So this is a substantial change from a validation perspective because withholding agents will be required to identify whether that TIN has been provided when collecting forms for either 1446A or 1446F purposes. But it shouldn't really be a massive substantive change from the perspective of the partner because they were supposed to have these TINs in the first place. They just have to remember to put them on the return. Having said that, we do know that there are some partners who have not been filing returns and thus wouldn't have the TIN. And Lori, I think that's potentially going to be an issue, right? Oh, I think it's absolutely going to be an issue that this is evidencing that they are now going to push this issue. And I think, you know, historically using their position on the Form 8233 for those persons that are claiming treaty benefits on services provided in their capacity as an independent service provider and where they were insistent that there have to be a U.S. TIN on that Mm -hmm. form instead of a foreign TIN. And that was exactly their point, that this is because they are required to file a return. So they, they need to have that TIN. And, you know, if you read the draft instructions, they use language in the instructions that states that a partner invested in a partnership conducting a trade or business in the United States may be subject to withholding under 1446F on that amount. And in such case, the partner would be required to obtain the TIN and is required to provide it on the W-8. Because they use the language like may, it implies that there will be circumstances where that partner isn't required to get a TIN and therefore doesn't need to provide it on the form. And I do find that a little confusing because their definition of an amount subject to withholding for 1446F purposes is drafted incredibly broadly to include any amount realized on the transfer of a partnership interest. So I'm struggling to determine when that partner is not going to be receiving an amount subject to withholding based on that definition. It seems like if you are using this return for 1446F purposes at all, there must be an EIN there. The other reason this might be significant is for treaty claims. Right now, if you're making a treaty claim, you are required to have a TIN generally on that form subject to certain exceptions, but that TIN can either be a U.S. TIN or a foreign TIN. Based on this new draft language, it appears that if you're making a treaty claim for 1446F purposes, that TIN must be a U.S. TIN. And I think the reason for this requirement is that even if the income you're receiving is exempt for treaty purposes, if you're receiving ECI, you're required to file a return. So it may have been the case that these partners weren't filing returns previously because they were receiving exempt income. And the IRS, as Lori said, is now enforcing that and making sure that you're filing that return before they're going to grant you treaty relief. Another thing I wonder about this is if you're not getting treaty relief, which is going to be the rare circumstance, the only other real reason you need to provide a Form W8-BEN or BEN-E for 1446F purposes is to ensure that proper reporting is done, because either way, you're going to be hit with the 10% tax. So it's not going to have a withholding impact. But when you're being withheld upon, you do want to make sure that you're receiving a proper documentation so that you can file a claim for a refund or a credit. Yeah, I think this is a, a really interesting point, because historically, um, the IRS has allowed credit where there wasn't the U.S. tax ID number on the form, as long as they could clearly match up the names. I'm not saying that across the board, but in general, sometimes it took some pushback, but they would give that credit. And I think now this is exactly what's going to happen because they've made clear that a U.S. TIN is required on the form. If you're a a partner that's receiving this type of income, that they're going to push the issue. And I think they're not going to give the credit on the form 1042S if that U.S. tax ID number isn't on that form. I think it's going to be a real issue. 
And I think those are the major issues for the W8 Ben and Ben E. We did want to cover a couple of issues for the W8 IMY. A couple of things with respect to the NQI certifications. We are now seeing a new checkbox for NQIs to make an alternative withholding statement certification. This is, to me, the best thing of all the form changes. And the reason for this is the IRS was clear in their regulations that if you are not going to do a withholding statement that has every single field listed out in the form instructions, which is roughly about 15 different fields, then you need to do an alternative withholding statement, which really just allows you to provide an allocation statement. But that alternative withholding statement had to have specific certification language indicating that the NQI has no other information on its files that contradicts the information provided on the forms. Across the board, we're seeing withholding statements continuously coming in without all of the required fields, without the required certification to make it an alternative withholding statement. So this addition of the checkbox is really helpful. Number one, in that it maps out all the language that you would need to make the certification. So all you need to do is check the box and there's no way to really mess up the verbiage, which was definitely possible before. But also it makes it clear to a person completing the form that if you're going to do an alternative withholding statement, you must check this box. So I think that's incredibly positive. The one noteworthy thing is they've only added this certification box to the NQI certifications. They do not have a similar alternative withholding statement certification in the field for the non-withholding partnerships and non-withholding trusts. The regulations in the preamble only address the alternative withholding statement and the rules specifically pertaining to NQIs. However, 1441-5, which covers the partnership and trust documentation rules, cross-references the documentation rules in the NQI section when discussing the obligations of non-withholding partnerships and non-withholding trusts. Therefore, a non-withholding partnership or non-withholding trust should be able to use an alternative withholding statement under the regulations, and we can't really see a policy reason for not allowing them to do so. So it is curious they didn't add a checkbox in that field, and we are hoping that this is just an oversight that can be addressed in the finalization of the forms. The other significant issue that we're seeing with respect to NQIs pertains to 1446F specifically. The draft instructions contain language that indicates that the NQI can actually pass up the beneficial ownership information for 1446F purposes. So even though an NQI, when receiving a payment subject to 1446F withholding, is going to get hit with a 10% withholding tax, no matter who the beneficial owners are, the language now allows them to pass up pay-specific information so that the upstream withholding agent can report directly to those beneficial owners. This allows those beneficial owners to ensure that they get the documentation they need to claim a credit or a refund for the amounts withheld, because it is somewhat debatable whether an NQI is going to be doing this. The question then arises, well, what if the underlying beneficial owner is a U.S. person? The 1099 form doesn't really properly address what you do when you have withholding done by an upstream withholding agent for 1446F purposes. The 1042S instructions should address that, but the instructions indicate that these forms shouldn't be issued to U.S. persons. There is also a problem generally caused when withholding is done under Chapter 3 or 4, but the person is a U.S. person because the reporting to the U.S. person should be done on a 1099, but that amount has been deposited in the withholding agent's account for their 1042. And so in order to get a refund or a credit claim, 
the withholding agent is specifically going to need to reach out to the IRS to move those deposits from their 1042 account to the 1099 account. This is incredibly laborious when you're talking large numbers of accounts, and it isn't an easy process to do with the IRS. And so that does raise the issue now for 1446F purposes, where we know this is going to be happening, that there's going to be withholding applied to U.S. persons investing through NQIs. It's going to happen frequently where these U.S. persons are going to need the credit for the 10% tax. If you're not allowed to issue the 1042S to the U.S. person, there's going to be massive problems for withholding agents having to transfer the money back and forth to their accounts. And again, the 1099 forms don't seem set up to handle this amount, to adequately show the amounts withheld for 1446F purposes. So we do think it's important that people provide comments to the IRS on this. Our hope is that they're going to change the instructions to simply allow the withholding agent to issue a 1042S here. That way, the form you issue matches the deposit you've made to the IRS, and you don't have to reach out to them specifically to do the transfers. We think we would need to have a field added to the 1042S to specifically add a payee code for U.S. persons that have been withheld upon. But that return should be able to be attached to your regular tax return to allow that U.S. person to get a credit. And then the final thing that we wanted to bring up with respect to these changes relates to the W-8IMY and in particular the new QI certifications relating to Section 1446F. So there are three types of QIs for 1446F purposes. We're going to have our QI that assumes withholding responsibility, a QI that does not assume withholding responsibility, and just as it does today for Chapters 3 and 4, provides withholding rate pools so that the upstream broker knows how to impose the withholding correctly. But we have a new type of QI just for 1446F, and it's called a non-withholding disclosing QI. So this is a QI that is not going to assume withholding responsibility, but instead of passing up pooled withholding information, it's essentially going to act like an NQI. It's going to pass up all of the underlying beneficial owner documentation, and it's going to have a withholding statement that has all of the allocation information relating to each of those beneficial owners. And then the upstream broker is going to take care of all the requisite reporting with respect to these payments. So as it relates to the certifications, we have a new line uh, 15B, and this is for the QI that is assuming all of the withholding responsibilities on 1446F payments. We don't have anything if they're not assuming, which is normal. That's how the other rules work. You only made the the assertion with the exception of not assuming Form 1099 reporting and backup withholding. But for Chapters 3 and 4, you didn't specifically check a box to say I'm not assuming. I think that the odd thing here is it doesn't have anything specifically to address the situation where that QI is not assuming, but is going to disclose all of the beneficial owner documentation. So we've got some changes to the general language that all QIs check the box, and that's 14A. And it does address 1446F, and it, it talks about withholding statements. It doesn't talk anything about documentation. So we're not sure if this is an oversight or if the IRS thought when you put it all together, when you get a withholding statement with all of the allocation information and all of the beneficial owner documentation has been sent to you, that you would figure that out. the, The instructions go into detail about this disclosing QI. So just not sure there. We are making the comment to the IRS on this, so we'll see what happens with that. But I think either way, 
I think the point is, if you are a non-withholding QI and you've got pooled information for chapters three and four, but you're going to disclose for purposes of 1446F, we would recommend that you have two separate withholding statements, one for the pools for chapters three and four, and one specifically with all of the beneficial owner information that's clearly identified at the top what each covers so that we avoid some inadvertent errors with the upstream custodian, either using the pooled information for 1446F or inadvertently reporting directly to the beneficial owners for purposes of three or four. So either way, I think even if they change the certifications for the disclosing, I think we would still recommend that you keep those withholding statements separate. And I think that wraps up our podcast for today. We appreciate you listening in. And if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us. We look forward to talking with you soon.